book of Acts in the details related to the inception of the church. This will be an exposition, a study, Bible study, so to speak, on the second sermon that Peter gives. It is the second sermon that Peter gives here while he is in Solomon's portico, and we recall last week of the healing of the man who was lame from birth. And we will begin reading in Acts chapter 3, verse 11 through 26, a longer passage, more detailed, but a wonderful, wonderful message of the Savior. Verse 11, chapter 3, Acts. The scriptures read, While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned to the presence of Pilate, in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him, given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren to him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. O Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us in our weakness to have a reverence for you and your word, and that, Father, you would open the eyes of our heart that we might see once again great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Many studies have shown that people tend to exaggerate their own positive characteristics and abilities. For instance, Studies have shown that most drivers think they're better than average than other drivers. Some call this the state of illusory superiority. Recently, in 2014, uh, a team of British researchers tested this common better-than-average tendency by surveying 85 convicts at a prison. 
in southeast England about their pro-social traits. The inmates were aged 18 to 34, 85 of them, and the majority had been jailed for acts of violence and robbery. The inmates completed questionnaires anonymously in relative privacy, and here's what the study concluded. Compared with, quote, the average prisoner, the convicts rated themselves as more moral, kinder to others, more self-controlled, more law-abiding, more compassionate, more generous, more dependable, more trustworthy, and more honest. Remarkably, they also rated themselves as higher in all these traits than an average member of the community, with one exception, law-abiding. The prisoners rated themselves as equivalent on this trait relative to the average community member. John Stossel in ABC's 2020 tells us of a study and shows that those with the highest self-esteem, how they view themselves, are those that you find in prison. In other words, they have the greatest amount of pride. They think most highly of themselves. And it's rather amazing that people convicted of a crime, serving sentences, think very highly of themselves. It's why sometimes people become so angry, because when their bubble is burst, then they flail out. An average or better or average than the, those outside of the prison is how they often sees, see themselves. But it's not just prisoners, it's not just those who are incarcerated, it's indicative of people in general. I'm a better driver than so-and-so, or the average person, or we think more highly of ourselves than others. It's a common reason why, in fact, people give to say that, well, they don't need Christianity, they don't need Christ because, well, I'm not so bad. I'm not a convict, I've never murdered anybody, I'm not an addict, or I don't need help because I'm simply above average. And God should view that in a particular way, they muse to themselves. But that is why, and it is so very important when we share the gospel, that it begins with the subject of sin and the guilt of our sin. We need to establish the fact that we are sinners that we have offended a holy God and the consequences of sin are death and hell. And just as every crime deserves a punishment, it was Jesus who died for our sins, arose from the dead, paid that price for all who would come to the foot of the cross, turning themselves over to him, begging for salvation. Our only hope for salvation is found in that perfect sacrifice of Jesus who died in our place. And it is that presentation of sin, it is that guilt because of sin that Peter here builds the case. He builds the case as he preaches this message and he calls the people to repentance. And he begins with that subject, the subject of their guilt before presenting grace, the subject of their sin before presenting the remedy for it. Because you and I are as They were guilty sinners who are deserving of judgment, and yet it is Jesus who provides for us life. Now, you may recall from last week, as we covered the book of Acts and where we're at now, Jesus had come for 40 days, he had ministered among his disciples, and then he went and ascended into heaven. And 10 days later, on the 50th day, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came The Holy Spirit came, and that is the feast of the ingathering. And in so doing, God began the ingathering of his people as 3,000 were saved. And on that day as well, when the Holy Spirit came, God provided a miracle beforehand, the supernatural speaking of tongues, and then that provided the impetus, the interest as people heard their language speaking from all around the Mediterranean. They had come, and they heard these apostles speaking, and they had an audience, and Peter preached the first message, a message of Jesus and the reason why he came and their guilt, and he called them to repentance, and people by the thousands came to Christ. Then we looked at how the church fellowshiped and how they made a priority of prayer, of listening to the apostles' teaching, of communion and fellowship together. And now, last week, we saw how Peter and John, how they routinely, like many of them, went up to the temple daily. 
And upon going in the temple, there was a lame man there who had been lame since birth for 40 years. He was over 40 years old or so, somewhere around there. And he called out to them, alms, alms. And Peter and said, said, in effect, silver and gold have I none. But he gave in the name of Jesus, Jesus' empowerment healed him and enabled him to walk. And he was walking and leaping. And praising God. And all the people saw this. All the people saw this, verse 9. And they were asking and taking note of what had happened to this lame man who would sit at the beautiful gate, verse 10. And they were amazed. And so now we come to what is happening now. God once again provides a supernatural, powerful illustration that amazed people. And Peter preaches here the second Christian sermon, and he begins by elucidating their and indicting them of their crime and presenting to them their sin. Verse 11, the conviction of guilt. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the so-called portico of Solomon full of amazement, beautiful area, high columns, 45, 35 feet apart, 45 at the center, these columns, 162 of them, and there was a roof over that, a cedar roof, a large covered cedar roof, in which it was the area in John chapter 10 where Jesus, Jesus proclaimed himself as the good shepherd. Here these people were flocking to Peter and John as this lame man was clinging to them, so happy, and they were full of amazement. And Peter says to them, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Verse 12, why do you gaze at us as if by our power or piety we had made him walk? And he begins a message, a message about Jesus message about Jesus, and we find that Jesus this is the theme of the message. In chapter 5, we find that. Chapter 8, chapter 9, the preaching of the message of Jesus, the life of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But he here says to them, why are you amazed? Here is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our forefathers, verse 13, has glorified his servant Jesus. And then he begins laying out for them the indictment of what they had done. He says to them and, re- and, and relates to them in a way, saying, men of Israel, generically, the people of Israel, that is how the phrase is used, politely addressing the crowd who is gathering around, why are you so amazed? Why are you so amazed? After all, they should be accustomed to supernatural things happening. They are familiar with supernatural things happening from their Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament in which there were many miraculous things that had happened, and it is well known that Jesus had performed many miracles, and yet here they are. They're amazed, and perhaps they're amazed because they had heard that This man was healed in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. After all, the Jewish leaders would have told them that this crucifixion happened to a person who was a blasphemer, a person who was a phony. So perhaps they were amazed because it was in the name of Jesus. And we learned last week that when one invokes the name, it is by the power and the authority of that person that does the healing. That is why it is in the name of Jesus. Well, Peter answers the question that might be on their minds as he begins answering what he has proposed. He says the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, he aligns himself not only with the heritage of the Jews, saying men of Israel, identifying God as the same God that he and they recognize. And he says that God has glorified his servant, Jesus. Who is this Jesus? The one, he says, verse 13, whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. Here's what they did. You see the main verbs there. They delivered him over. They disowned him. They put him to death. 
Delivering means to hand over, and to disown means to deny, to say no in the presence of Pilate, whom he had decided to release him. You see, despite the fact that Pilate had decided to release him, when you look at the gospel narratives in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at the composite picture, Pilate, Pilate had declared Jesus innocent six times, six times. For example, he says in Luke 23, 4, I find no guilt in this man. And he was trying to release Jesus. And, you know, they had a a strict moral code. They had a strict legal code by which they would have to find somebody guilty in order to put them to death. You know, you find some of these things that the Romans followed these laws. It wasn't just willy-nilly. You could put somebody to death. They followed these things. We find this when, when the Apostle Paul and his friends were, were imprisoned or they were, they were shackled or chained or beaten in Acts chapter 16 or chapter 22, and, Ro- and he declares that I'm a Roman citizen and the Romans are afraid that now they have either imprisoned or beaten or arrested somebody without cause. So Pilate here, he is trying to follow the law, and he finds no guilt in him. Six times he says this man is not guilty, and he tries to release him a half a dozen times, but you recall the scene. They had this kangaroo court, this monkey trial, in which they had taken Jesus through the night, and in their own Sanhedrin, they had convicted him, even on the basis of false witnesses. And then they come to Pilate early in the morning, and you can imagine Pilate here, he's being dragged out of bed early in the morning when the crowds haven't yet gotten up, and because Pilate was a rather uh, uh, spineless kind of a fellow who had done a number of dumb things and angered Caesar, they took advantage of that, and they told him, basically, if you don't crucify Jesus, then we're going to tell Caesar. And at that, that was enough for Pilate to cave in early in the morning The Jews forced his hand. So not only did they deliver and disown Jesus, but not only did they do that, they asked for a murderer, a murderer to be granted to you, Barabbas. Call out, they wanted Barabbas. Whom should I for? Barabbas, Barabbas, they would crawl out. It's not merely the indictment of an innocent man and the conviction and the false conviction and the crucifixion of an innocent man, but they asked for a criminal in his case. And in addition to all of that, not only did they deliver him over, they disowned him, they asked for a murderer in his place, but it was the holy and righteous one, verse 14, but put to death the prince of life. Do you see what Peter is doing here? Peter is building up their guilt, and he's indicting them, elevating the seriousness of their crime. You disown God's servant, an innocent man, secondly, in a miscarriage of justice, as Pilate wanted to release him. Thirdly, the holy one by nature. He is holy. He is separate by nature. He is the righteous one by all his behavior, sinless. Fifthly, he's the prince of life. The one who gives life to all, Colossians 1, in all things, things were created, all in exchange for a known and convicted criminal. And he builds this case up and indicts them with the facts pointing to their guilt. It was the worst of all things that one could be convicted of. They put to death all of their hopes and dreams for a Messiah in exchange for a criminal, Peter says. This is what he did also in the first sermon. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, in his first sermon, after they had spoken, right after the Holy Spirit came, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You know Jesus did all of these miraculous things. You know that no one does these things, as Nicodemus says in John chapter 3, no one does these things unless they're from God. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed 
to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. They're guilty. They're guilty of putting to death an innocent man. By nature, by behavior, he was holy and righteous. He was the giver of life. They put to death the Messiah, the Messiah whom they had hoped for for all of these years, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And now he answers, why? Why are you all gawking and staring and being amazed at all of this that is happening? Why are you wondering how in the world is it that this lame man is walking? How can, a, in their mind's eye, a dead man have any power to give new created life to this man in his ability to walk? It's in the name and the power of Jesus. And he continues on, verse 15. The one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses, and the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is the faith of Peter and John, not the faith of the man who was healed that is referring to. Now, the Bible sometimes has people who healed because of their faith. Sometimes it is because of the faith of others, and this person who may be healed may or may not have faith in Christ or God. But the power came through Christ, and it was on the basis of faith that Peter and John exercised in declaring that this man, through the power of Jesus, would be healed. The basis of faith, the power of Jesus, though, which has strengthened this man. The point is, you see, even though he says to these men of Israel, you put to death the Messiah, God has raised him from the dead. And this is the evidence that by the power of Jesus, this man is healed. He brings to them an indictment of all that they had done. The people of Israel had condemned, delivered over, and put to death the Messiah. And you're amazed at this man who was healed? You're amazed at this man who was healed? It's because God has raised the Messiah whom you put to death. He raised him and he is alive today. And he brings that to its climax. And then he issues a call, a call to repentance, beginning in verse 17. And he says something very kind to them. And he says, now, brethren, so that he's like one with them, I know you acted in ignorance. It's like saying, I know you didn't fully understand everything you were doing, just as your rulers did also. Even though this, this doesn't excuse their guilt, they did it in, in ignorance. Acts 13, 27 and 28 tells us, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. They fulfilled the scriptures. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. They did it. They were part of the foreordained plan of God. Back in the book of Acts, chapter 2, it says that they were cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sin, of killing their long-awaited Messiah, but he would return. It also said he was going to return in judgment. So what would they do? What would they do? And such a thought was terrifying. God had announced beforehand that this was going to happen, that Christ would suffer. All this was a fulfillment of prophecy. Peter tells them what they need to do. Verse 19, repent and return. Repent and return. Repent literally means to change one's mind, but return means to go the other way. Repentance is to change one's mind and to point the other way. By God's grace, one can repent and turn from the, the direction they are following their own way and turn to Christ. It's different than confession. Confession simply means to agree with. You agree with God on your sin, but repentance is what we desire to have, a life of repentance, of turning away from our sin, walking the other way by the power of God. And if you repent in return, verse 19 
It says, so that your sins may be wiped away. This is what Peter tells them to do. You are guilty of this heinous crime. You're indicted because of all that has happened and all the evidence that is there, and the evidence stands right before you in this man who has been healed through the name and power of Jesus. And repent and return from your sins. Why? What will happen? So that your sins may be wiped away. Some of your versions say blotted out or erased, and this is the picture that is there. In ancient times, uh, the ink, the ink that was used in writing wasn't uh, quite, didn't quite contain the same acidic content as our ink does today, and the papyrus or the vellum that they would write on would not soak up the ink, so it would sit there on the top, and if one took a wet rag, one would be able to wipe it clean, or to take a, a piece of cloth, they would be able to damp, uh, be able to blot it away. And that is the picture that is here. Your sins would be wiped away or blotted out. It would be gone. And so too, for the one who repents, it would be wiped away. It wouldn't be held against them. It would disappear forever. The sinner's sins would be blotted out. Colossians 2 also paints a picture as well. Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14, tells us a picture of our sin. As the scriptures tell us is what, happened, what has happened to our sin, verse 13 of Colossians 2. When you were dead, Paul writes, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, okay, all of our sins. He was the one who made us alive together with him, having, verse 14, canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. And he has taken it away, taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You and I had a certificate of debt that was hostile to us. We came to Christ, that debt was canceled. You know, in the mid-1990s, I don't know if you remember, but in Europe and Japan, I remember a friend who lives in Japan told me about this swell. They would have uh, these mortgages, you know, because housing prices would be very high and many people weren't able to afford a home. So what they would have is they would have a 100-year mortgage. Can you imagine that right now? I mean, if you got a mortgage back then, you'd have 80 years left to pay off your mortgage. And that's a big monkey on your back. You'd be dead by then unless you got that mortgage when you were like two and you might have a, a chance. But can you imagine having a 100-year mortgage or an 80-year mortgage? In the United States, I think they went up to like a 40 or 50 even. But then comes along someone who pays off and cancels out that certificate of debt, and it's no longer a burden to you. Your home is paid off. Now you won't pay it. You don't have to pay it. It's been paid off. Your children don't have to pay it. Your grandchildren don't have to pay it. And that's a loose picture of what Jesus did canceled out a debt that wasn't a hundred-year debt. It was an unpayable debt, unpayable lifelong debt, and he nailed it to the cross. As the song that we sing, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. What a joy, isn't it? It's been nailed to the cross, that certificate of debt, the joy of knowing that that will not be held against us. Because of Christ's righteousness, God sees us as righteous. But the second reason, not only will they repent and have their sins blotted or wiped away, is that the kingdom will come. The kingdom will come. Verse 19. So we see this is a bit more complicated here, but we see the who, why, and when. Who, it's pretty straightforward. Peter's talking with the people of Israel. He calls them the people of Israel there. He's calling them to repentance so their sins might be wiped away, but this is also why. Verse 19, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then verse 20, and that he may send Jesus... The Christ appointed for you, 
whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Now again, he's speaking to the men of Israel, and we'll revisit this audience that he is speaking with. But he begins by talking about what? About the future. About the future. The results of them as the men of Israel, the people of Israel, repent And what would happen? That what? Times of refreshing may come. He may send Jesus, and the period of restoration, verse 21, of all things of which God has spoken of will come. He's speaking about the future kingdom. The future kingdom, when Jesus will come again to set up his kingdom. Why did he ascend into heaven and not set up his kingdom here and now? Because Israel had rejected the Messiah. And he will not return until, until they turn and repent And the period of restoration of all things will come. And there will be a time of refreshing. And that word there for refreshing pictures a cool breeze that comes and blows across, blows across and brings in a cooling feeling. This is a rare biblical word occurring only here and once in the Septuagint, this time of refreshing. It's used in the Bible when the plague in, in Egypt happened of the frogs and the frogs left. There was a time of refreshing. That's when it was used. But what is this time? What is this time in the future, this period of restoration? We do know it will be in the future. We do know that it is when Jesus comes again and sets up his kingdom. So what is this time like? Well, Isaiah tells us about this time. Isaiah chapter 11. If you look in your Bibles and back in the prophetic book of the major prophet of Isaiah chapter 11, tells us about this what it will be like when Jesus comes again. What will it be like? It tells us when Jesus comes again and the kingdom is set up, verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 11. And again, this is after the repentance. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, the little boy and a little boy will lead them. So here are all these wild animals. Some are carnivorous, some are more, more uh, calm, and you have a little boy leading them. This is the big picture that is here. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Remember a time in the Bible when those who were carnivores were vegetarians. Before sin came in Genesis 3, it was like that. Verse 8, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the waters cover the seas. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. There'll be peace among the animals, among those who live. There will be peace. Isaiah 35, Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2. It says in Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2, the wilderness... The wilderness, it says, Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Erevah will rejoice and blossom. The Erevah is basically the wilderness in, in Israel. That's the Erevah, and it is hot out there. It is hot out there. There's nothing that grows out there. In fact, they only let us out of the, the, the tour bus for about 10, 15 minutes because it was so hot they were afraid we would, be, we would turn into prunes. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. What a wonderful picture of the future. This is the time. This is what it will be like when Jesus returns. How did God tell him about these times of refreshing? 
He tells them through the prophets. Back in Acts, he says in verse 22, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet. And then he begins to go on in verse 23, and there will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall utterly be destroyed from among his people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward and all announced these days. The prophets of the Old Testament spoke of the Messiah and the warning was that every soul that does not heed the prophet, the Messiah, will be utterly destroyed from among the people. So no one has any excuse. No one has any excuse then. He is saying these, to these Jews, you don't have an excuse to say, well, no one ever told us about the Messiah. See, it wasn't a lack of information. It was a lack of repentance. It wasn't a lack of opportunity that they had. It was a lack of a heart that was open to God. It was a hardness of heart. It was rejection of the Savior. And that is the same message we give today, that there is a Savior that has come, and we preach Christ, and that every soul that does not heed Christ will be utterly destroyed from among His people. It's an exclusive message. The way of Christ is the one and only way, not just, uh, some people say, not one of many ways, as some people think. James White, in an article in January of just this year, wrote about a Pew Research study, an American Americans in the religious landscape. And he writes that adults who identified with a religion were asked whether or not they believed that religion was one true faith that led to eternal life, or if their view was either that or many religions can lead to eternal life. What did they answer? Well, those who were professed Christians, two-thirds of them believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. Two-thirds. Fifty percent of all Christians believe some non-Christian religions can lead to everlasting life. Well, that is certainly not what the Scriptures say. It's certainly not what it says here. That it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Or Peter, who will say later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way to eternal life but through Christ. Repent, he says, turn back to God, O people of Israel, and Jesus, whom your prophets spoke of, will come. There will be a time of restoration, a time of refreshing that will come. And he goes back to elaborate once again who, verse 25, verse 25 in Acts chapter 3. It is you who are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant which God made with your fathers. Notice, he doesn't say, it was you who were the sons of the prophets. It was you who were the sons of the covenant. He says, you are the sons of the prophets. You are the sons of the covenant. There is hope for this group of people to whom he is speaking. You are the sons of the covenant. The promises haven't been taken away from you. It's an amazing statement of hope for the people of Israel that there is hope and a future. He speaks to them, and notice this is after, after Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven. There is a hope and a future for these Israelites as a nation, as an ethnic people. This is after the establishment of the church that he calls them the sons of the prophets, the sons of the covenant. Because some might want to say, no, 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 oh, Israel, you have no more hope. You have no more hope of God's, you're no longer God's covenant people. You've failed. You've rejected the Messiah. There is no hope for you, but Peter doesn't say that. He says, you're the sons of the covenant. You are the sons of the prophet. And that's what Peter says. You can imagine to them this crowd of all of these Israelites who had come for the feast of, uh, of Pentecost, and they, they feel so, so very convicted because they had put to death their Messiah. They had put to death their Messiah 
What do we do? As they said before, Peter answers that you're the sons of the covenant. And he tells them, repent. He doesn't say to them, you will be the sons of the covenant if you repent, or you will be the sons of the prophets, or you'll receive those if you turn to Christ. He says, you are, you are. Now, what is the covenant? What is the covenant? What does it mean as a son and heir of the covenant? Well, you look back as he mentions, even in verse 25 of Acts chapter 3, he mentions Abraham. He mentions Abraham. So let's look at that covenant back in Genesis chapter 15, because this is where they establish a covenant, where God establishes a covenant with these people, and this is an important passage to understand. Genesis chapter 15, to whom is he speaking as these covenant people, as these covenant people, whom is he speaking to? All right, Genesis 15, as we know in Genesis 12, God calls Abram out from among his people, and he says, I'm going to bless you, and he's going to multiply his seed, and he's going to make him as the sand on the seashore. And again, in Genesis 15, when we look at verse 5, God here took him outside and said, now look to the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them, and he said, so shall your descendants be. So he promises him, your descendants, Abraham, or Abram at this point, he says, you will be multiplied in your descendants as the stars. And he believed God, Genesis 15, 6. He believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the point at which Abram becomes, becomes saved. God reckons righteousness to him. Verse 7, and he says to them a second promise. A second promise. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans. I give you this land, this land to possess it. So he says to him, I'm going to multiply your descendants and I'm going to give you this land. And Abram says, verse 8, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three year old heifer. A heifer is a, a, a cow, a female cow that does not have a calf, and a three year old female goat. And a three-year-old lamb, ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. So here God says, I'm going to multiply your seed, number one. Number two, I'm going to give you this land to possess it. And he will tell him what this land is later on as he elucidates later on what it is. But right now, Abram, I want you to do this. I want you to bring these animals. I want you to cut them in half and put them across from one another. What is this that he is doing? God is going to make a covenant. It will say that in the text as we look at the book of Genesis later on. But when a covenant was made, a covenant a covenant was made between two parties. This was the custom, that they would cut these animals. They would cut these animals and lay them across from each other, half here, half there. And the two parties would walk in between these two cut animals, okay? In between all of them, they would pass through these two cut animals and in effect saying, I make this very serious and solemn vow, this promise, this covenant, that if I break my covenant with you, may it be done to me just as it has been done to these animals. It is upon my very life that I make this covenant with you, that I make it upon my very own life. That is the seriousness of a covenant. Many of you can reflect perhaps on the covenant you made as a husband or a wife there's a very seriousness to that covenant that you make. So what happens here? Verse 12. Verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, Genesis 5, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at good age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It, will, it came about, verse 17, when the sun had set, that it was very dark, 
And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So they have these two halves of these animals separated. The covenant is about to be made between God and Abram. Abram falls into a deep sleep, and he has understanding, though, of what is happening, some type of vision, perhaps, terror, great darkness fell upon him. God speaks to him, talks to him about how Israel will be in Egypt, but they'll be delivered over. And then what happens while Abram is asleep? Verse 17, it comes about when the sun had set that a smoking oven and a flaming torch, and we know from verse 18, this is representative of God. God pictured himself as a smoking oven and a flaming torch. And who walks through these cut animals? It is God and God alone. God makes a covenant with Abram who is asleep. And he makes this unilateral, one-sided covenant in which he promises upon his very own eternal being that this covenant will be kept And he makes this with Abram, and this is called the Abrahamic covenant. When God has promised to Abram, number one, his descendants will be many like the stars in the sky. Number two, he will get land for his people. God is the only one moving through this. This is an eternal, unilateral covenant, a one-sided promise by God to Abram. And this is what he says in verse 18. To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates. This is the promised land. This is the promised land, the physical land that he is being promised. There are many passages that speak of this land that he will be given. How long will it be given? Genesis 17, verse 8. Genesis 17, verse 8. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So he promises to Abraham in a unilateral covenant, I'll give you descendants. I'll give you this land. To this date, it's obvious that Israel does not have this land from the Euphrates all the way to Egypt. Now look back at Acts chapter 3, verse 25. You remember the people whom Peter is speaking with in Acts chapter 3, verse 25. He's speaking to the men of Israel. He's speaking to the sons of the covenant. He tells these people and he reminds them of the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, remember, God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you. There is a future for you, for the people. You will be multiplied and you will have this land. It is to you, the people of Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, the sons of the covenant has not been abrogated, has not been nullified, has not been passed on somehow to the church. This is the future. There is a future for Jewish Israel, for the people, because of God's eternal unilateral covenant, which is based upon Him and Him alone. That's the restoration of all things, this time of refreshing. When Israel as a nation will repent and turn. What will that time be and when will that time be? When will that happen? Well, you have a few choices here. It's either already happened in the past, which we know it hasn't. It's happening now and some people will spiritualize the whole thing away and say, oh no, it's spiritual. But it's obvious that they don't have it now. He calls them the sons of the covenant and there's no reason to think that God was promising somehow Abraham's spiritual land. No, he says, the land of your sojournings. And when will they receive this? After the return of Jesus. And this isn't in heaven. The only option left is in a period of time, in a period of time in which God will, Jesus will come back to establish his kingdom. That is left in the millennial kingdom, the millennial kingdom. This is in a period of time after the seven years of tribulation that Jesus will return Remember, this is the time that a time of refreshing after Israel turns to God as is spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. And we have a period of time when that land promise will be fulfilled because never has it been fulfilled in the history of all of mankind. Revelation 20 tells us, I saw the thrones and they sat on them. The judgment was given to them. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, Revelation 20 says, because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, because of those who have not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over those, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Six times in Revelation 20, it says a thousand years. A thousand years are referenced a half a dozen times, underscoring its importance and its literalness. There's no reason to spiritualize a thousand years away and just say, oh, that's not a thousand years, it's something else, even though it's repeated time and time and time and time and time again. It is a thousand years in which Jesus will establish that, and it will be a time after we find in the book of Revelation that will we'll be 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe that will be redeemed, and will be Israel who will turn, and the time of refreshing, that promise will come. So, put this all together. Peter indicts the nation, indicts these people with the guilt of their sin. And he tells them to repent. And repent and your sins will be blotted away. What a blessing. Number two, the kingdom will come because Jesus will return. There will be a time of refreshing, a time of restoration. He had to ascend into heaven until you repent. And then there will be this time when you repent, when you turn from your sin as a nation and then this messianic kingdom during the millennium will come and restore all things. And God, God has promised this to Abraham and you all are recipients, sons of the covenant. He calls them now sons of the covenant. When Israel returns, Christ will come, set up his millennial kingdom, and Israel receive the promised land. There's a future. There's a future. We love Israel. We desire that Israel would turn to God, and God will change their heart, as we will see in Revelation chapter 7. And there's a great hope for the people of Israel. There's a great hope for the Jewish nation when they turn. And Peter's message has an extension and application also to us as well. When we turn and repent of our sin, our sins too will be blotted away. If we don't know Christ, and God has great promises for us as well. And so recognize our sin. We desire to repent from it, to turn to Christ and ask of God to blot out our sin like ink that would just sit on the paper. God will grant eternal life to all who come in repentance and faith. And if you've never ever done so before, I encourage you to consider to give your life to God and beg of Him to save you from your sins. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we're grateful, Father, for your word, which promises, O oh Father, that your people, your chosen people, are special still, people of the covenant, people whom you have promised. Through Abraham, a promise that was made long ago based upon you, your eternal self. And so, Father, we pray for your, the nation of Israel that you would turn their hearts towards you, Oh God, we pray that we might also desire, God, to have a life of repentance and faith, knowing that, Father, you are the hope, the only hope of eternal life, forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name.